to do today is I want to move to the very practical, okay? I want to put some tools in your toolbox for when you go to open up the scriptures. Uh, because this, uh, this book can be pretty intimidating, right? It's all leather bound, you know. It's got little ribbon bookmarks. And it's got gold edges, you know. I mean, this book can be intimidating. And it's long, you know. And, and if, you, if you want to read this book, um, there are ways in which to begin to understand it uh, that I want to help you to do over the next two weeks. And so today when I, I want to talk to you uh, about a, a framework or a structure of um, studying the Bible uh, that I call Give Me Five or The Big Five or Five Views or Five Things. Obviously, I had trouble coming up with a name of this framework. It's five things to help you study the scripture, okay? But before we do that, uh, we are going to give some, some things away today at the end of the service, and your entry into the giveaway is your connection card. So right now, I want everybody to find your connection card. Did you get one on your way in? If there's anybody that did not get one on your way in, please raise your hand if you want to be entered. Now, some of you might be shy to raise your hand that you didn't get one, uh, but winning a resource to help study the Bible might change your life. So don't be shy. Raise your hand. Get a connection card. And everybody fill it out. Now, this is also a great opportunity to sign up to be part of the soup supper. This is also a great opportunity to plan ahead and tell us what growth track classes you'll be participating in in the month of December, okay? This is a great opportunity to do all those things. So uh, fill that out. Make sure you fill it out uh, right now. Just take a moment to do that. We're not going to turn them in until after the message, uh, but this is your entry into uh, the drawing today. So we want to make sure everybody has one. Uh, also, um, Jacinda, if sometime during t- the service, if you could make sure that anyone that filled one out in eKids is part of the drawing as well. Uh, we want to make sure that those that are serving uh, and investing in the lives of the generation to come are not withheld from our contest. Uh, and so, very good. Everybody take a moment to do that. Uh, you can do that as we uh, begin uh, and get started here this morning. But um, this is, a, uh, this is a, a move into the practical this morning. And, and let me say this. Uh, some, of you might, some of you might hear the message today. And you, you, you might say, you know, there's just a real... Uh, lack of depth in this teaching this morning because uh, it's just it's just here and it's just kind of teaching us and, and we're not going to learn any Greek or theological words and and all of those kinds of things so you might be tempted to say there's a real lack of, of depth in the teaching uh, but let me say this to you and I, I hope I have your attention for this a sermon is like a can of paint the value is in the application. Oh, come on. (laughs) See, a sermon is like a can of paint because the value is in the application. What what happens in our lives is we, especially if we've been a Christian for a long time, is 
you know, we, we hear all these sermons and, and we say, oh man, I've heard that sermon before. I already know how to study my Bible. I've already been there. I've already studied this. I've done all these things. And so we, we desire an increasing level of depth. But let me tell you, the depth of the teaching is in the extent of the application. Because I'm going to tell you how to study your Bible today, and it's going to be super practical. I mean, like, ground level, here's how to study the Bible, no Greek words, nothing like that, just here's how to study, super practical. The value in the teaching, the practical teaching today is, go home and read your Bible, Right? And so don't walk away from today saying, oh, that sermon wasn't very deep. I didn't get a warm fuzzy, man. It didn't help me. I was just given all this information. Well, the information is for the purpose of transformation. And and, and so I want you to know that. Not only today, uh, but might I say to you every Sunday, the sermon is like a can of paint because the value is in the application. Uh, I fear that too many Christians just want to collect paint and never get out the paintbrush. Uh, They just want to learn more information that they don't apply to their life. And let me just tell you, as as, uh, being seminary trained, having a master's of divinity, whatever that means, and uh, studying scripture for a living, sort of, uh, it's, uh, if I would just apply all the information that I knew, my life would be fundamentally different. And so that's true for me as well. That the value... And all the studying I do is just like a can of paint. It, the value is in the application, all right? So, so can we all make a commitment today? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give to you a can of paint. And then this week, I want you to get out the paintbrush and open, open the can and start applying it on the walls of your life. That's good? All right. So let's do this. Uh, so today, the, the framework, the structure of studying the scripture uh, is a structure Uh, of five things. And number one, the first thing, when we're coming to a book, a passage of scripture, a verse of scripture, um, uh, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, the first thing we need to know is about, about. That's the first one. I see pens writing. That's good. About, okay? We need to know about this passage of scripture. Now, what is about? About is, is what do we know about this passage or scripture, this, this book as a whole? Uh, these, are the, these are the things that are facts about this book. It's things that you could put in a bullet point. It's, it's answering the questions of, of who and what and where and when. In other words, we need to know who wrote this book, where were they when they wrote it, When did they write it in history? To whom did they write it, right? Those are the the W's that we're trying to answer. And any other facts that we can just say, this is important. Now, let me give you an example. Philippians is a book about joy. If you were to read it simply devotionally, you would recognize that one of the most recurring themes in the book of Philippians in the New Testament is joy. Paul, all the time, the Paul, he's the person that wrote it, all the time is talking about being joyful, being filled with joy, uh, having a joyous attitude, joy, joy, joy. I mean, that devotionally could challenge us, it can inspire us, it can do all sorts of things. But if we don't know about the book, 
then that doesn't carry as much meaning because what we find out if we do a little bit of study about the book is that not only did Paul write it, but Paul wrote it from a prison cell in Rome where he had been incarcerated for preaching the gospel about which he is so joyful. Now that framework of understanding totally changes the impact and the the dynamic of the book of Philippians. Are you with me? And so first thing is we need to know about the book. Things that we can put in a bullet point, uh, things that are just facts. Now, a great thing and a great resource for that, because some of you are like, well, how am I supposed to know? Like, I just pick up the Bible. How am I supposed to know who wrote it and when and where and to whom? Well, a great resource for that, and I would encourage all of you to pick this up, and this is not a commercial for this. We don't, we're not selling these in the lobby, you know, nothing like that. Uh, but this is a, this is a, a Bible handbook. Uh, a Bible handbook is a great one. This is a great Bible handbook published by Holman. It's illustrated, has lots of pictures, right? So if you like read books and you're still like, where are the pictures? Like, like me, like I read a book and I'm like, where are the pictures? Uh, then this is for you, okay? Uh, it's a great resource. And the way that a Bible handbook is structured is it's structured just like the canon of scripture. And so you could flip through this book. It starts with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, all the way to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And it's, it's organized by books of the Bible. And it tells you all those things that you need to know. It tells you who wrote it, where they were when they wrote it, uh, you know, all, all the W's. Okay? So this is a great resource to have. It's also very small, light, fits in a purse. You could carry it with you anywhere. Okay? So that's the Bible handbook. Uh, I hope that's not sacrilegious to put the Bible handbook on the communion table. I know it's not a Bible, but it's the next best thing. Um, so the first thing is about. Are you with me? Is this fun? <laughs> Good, because we're only one thing in. We got four more left. What we're going to do is we're going we're to go through all five, then we're going to do a case study. Okay, so then we're going to actually study a passage of Scripture using this framework. Uh, but the second thing is context. Where about answers the questions of who and what and where and when, the context answers the question of why. Why write this narrative of the people of Israel? Why write this letter that Paul wrote? Uh, Why write this poem in the Psalms? Uh, why is why is the is the author motivated to write these words? That's the context. The context also asks the question: What is happening in the world in which they're writing to? So, for example, uh, in other words, the the letter of Philippians. Uh, we know about it. It was written by Paul. It was written by Paul in a Roman prison, and yet he still talks about joy. That changes everything. Uh, but we also need to know the context. What is happening in the church in Philippi that motivates Paul to write this letter? That's the context. What is happening that motivates the author to write these words? It seeks to answer the question, why? So what's happening in that time? What's happening in that particular church? If it's a Pauline epistle, what's happening in that location that motivates the writer to write? What is the context that the writer is addressing? Um, about is factual, right? 
about is bullet points. Context is descriptive. Context describes this world uh, of, the, of the first century writers. Um, and so that, I think that's, really, that's, that's a helpful thing uh, to help you think about and distinguish between the two. Now, obviously, these are all connected, right? If you start learning about, the context almost begins to, to bring itself uh, out while you're studying the about. Um, and so the context is descriptive. Now, a great resource for this is a Bible dictionary. Uh, the difference between a Bible handbook and a Bible dictionary is not only the information that they give, but also how they're structured. A Bible handbook is structured by the books of the Bible. A Bible dictionary is structured just like a dictionary, where if you wanted to learn about a particular person, a particular place, or a particular object, you would look it up alphabetically in the Bible dictionary. So if in the about section, you learned that Paul wrote the letter of Philippians to the church in Philippi, and you wanted to know what's going on in Philippi and what kind of city it is, then you would go to your Bible dictionary to the P's and you would look up Philippi. And it would tell you all about the city and the history of the city and where it was located and the culture of the city and all of these kinds of things. It's very, very helpful. And if you begin, uh, I mean, if, if you can get the about and the context then you're halfway to understanding a, 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 a scripture, a Bible passage, because what happens is when we read the Bible just devotionally, and remember, this is not a series to say, you shouldn't read your Bible devotionally, that's bad. No, what this series is to say, there's a room and space to read your Bible devotionally, and there's room and space to, to read your Bible and study it. And what happens is when we read our Bible devotionally, we miss out on the about and the context, and we're only looking for the message. And thank God for the faithfulness of his spirit to speak to our hearts directly a message that applies to our life that is helpful for our situation. Remember last week I said when we're reading the Bible devotionally, we might say things like the words just popped off the page or there was something that I'd read it a thousand times before and I've never noticed this, right? That is the faithfulness of God speaking directly into our hearts. But if we can learn to study the scripture, then I believe that the faithfulness of God even compounds further to speak to us in our understanding of the about and the context, okay? Does that make sense? And so, so much of our Bible reading skips the about and the context. And what happens then is we begin to read the, the, the scripture as an a-contextual book. A-contextual is a fancy way of saying without context. We read this, this book and these letters and poems and narratives as though they were written in our world, which they weren't. And so we need to understand the world in which they were written so that we can understand how to apply them in our lives and in our world. Are you with me now? All right. So about is facts, bullet points, and then context is descriptive and why did the author write this. Uh, the third thing then is the message, the message. In other words, the message is 
What does the writer have to say? If we understand the about, and then we understand the context, then we can begin to say, the, the, the message is, what is the writer saying about the context? Or what sort of gospel-centered message is the writer speaking into the context. So if you read the New Testament and the letters of Paul, you begin to realize that the New Testament church wasn't all that we have we crack it out to be sometimes, right? Sometimes there's these big movements. We got to get back to the New Testament church. Well, if you read the New Testament, you realize that the New Testament church struggled with sexual sin and unity and they struggled with uh with with false gospel and false messages. I mean, they struggled with a lot of stuff. Sounds a lot like today's church, huh? <laughs> right? And so what the, the, the message is, if the church in Corinth is struggling with being unified in their church, what sort of message is the Apostle Paul saying to speak into that context to move them toward greater unity because of the gospel? Then all of a sudden, like, this starts to make a lot of sense, Right? And so the message is, is just seeking to say what sort of, of, of message, what sort of truth is being spoken into the context in which it was written. Now, this becomes a little more difficult when, it's, uh, when we're talking about narratives, right? Like the book of Exodus, which reads like a, like a Hollywood movie. I mean, the action just never slows down. Uh, you, you've got all kinds of stuff, right? So you're reading this book of Exodus, and you don't have this tight little... Uh, context of this particular church and this particular time and Paul wrote this letter. It's not that clean. But at the same time, you can begin to address the question of what is the world like in this, in, at that time? What's the context? And then why in the world would an author choose to record this narrative? For what purpose? What is the message that they're trying to get across? Uh, so it can be done with any book in the scriptures, uh, but it be, it, some are easier uh, than others to figure this out. Now, the message is, is what does a writer have to say? How does he speak truth into the context? And I used to have a seminary professor. Uh, he was my favorite professor. Uh, he used to say, the, this is where you discover the rub of the text, that's what he used to say, the rub of the text. And he always said it like that, the rub of the text. And the rub of the text is this. It's how does this Bible passage, book, verse, chapter, whatever you're studying, where is the intersection between what this passage of Scripture is saying and my life? At some point, they have to intersect. If they never intersect, then the Bible hasn't shaped us. It hasn't formed us. The rub of the text is, this is what I'm dealing with. This is my challenge. This is my situation. This is the state of my heart. And this is what this passage of Scripture has to say about that. It's the rub of the text. Are you with me? Now, sometimes, again... The, the rub of the text will hit you like a lightning bolt. And it will be so obvious what God wants you to do and how he wants you to respond and, and how this is speaking into you. And other times, it won't be as obvious. Um, but 
even in those moments when it's not quite as obvious and you're missing the lightning bolt, if we can faithfully open ourselves up to the teaching and the counsel of the word of God, in the long term, even without a lightning bolt, we're better off and we're shaped. Right? It's like someone says, well, what's the value of reading the Bible? I never get the lightning bolt. I never get the obvious rub of the text. Well, so you might also say, what's the value of eating? That I've, I can't remember what I had a week ago. It was of no value. I believe it was. Right? And, and so just like a sermon is a can of paint, the value is in the application. Reading your scripture is like a meal. The value is in eating it. <laughs> I mean, that wasn't as good, but it was good. Okay? And you guys weren't picking up on it, and that's okay. I'm, I'm secure in who I am. So that's all right. I don't need you to laugh at my jokes. So it's all good. Uh, now, a resource for this to discover the message is back to the Bible handbook. Okay? So the Bible handbook, the way it's structured, this one in particular, but almost all Bible handbooks, are you get a little introduction to, to, the, to the letter, the book. And it says, here's who wrote it and when and in what context and to whom and all this kind of stuff. And then it says, well, here's the message that they were speaking to. This is also helpful for context. In context, these two resources work hand in hand. You go to the Bible Dictionary, and you learn about Philippi itself. Then you go to the book of Philippians in the Bible Handbook, and it tells you a little bit about what Paul is saying in particular to the city of Philippi, but they work together. Then when it comes to the message, you go back to the Bible Handbook, and it gives you, it fills that in. And, And so it helps you. The message is also where there's room for devotional, right? And so you're like sitting there, and you're, and you're reading this passage of scripture, you go to your Bible handbook, you learn the about and the context, and then you will go back to the scripture and you allow the message just to speak to you in the faithfulness of God. You don't, you don't learn to rely on these things necessarily, but you learn to use these things to allow the Lord to speak to you. Are you with me now? Are you getting an idea of how to study the scripture? This, is not, this doesn't have to be a two, three, four hour long thing. It could be half an hour. And you just quickly learn, and you do this, and you do that. And then as the more you learn, the more that you know that when I come to the book of Philippi, I, or Philippians, I know that it was written to the church in Philippi. I know what was going on here. I know what the Apostle Paul is doing. I know that he was in a, a, a Roman prison cell. And so now I have the context, and I have the about just sort of in my heart. And that, what that does is it leaves all sorts of room for the Spirit of God to work if you'll be faithful to study his word. You see? Isn't this good? I hope this is helpful to you. So for the message, you go back to the Bible handbook. And that's also space for reading the Bible devotionally. And then the fourth thing, you keep it up, about, context, message. The fourth thing is the place. The place. I want you to, to, when you read a passage of Scripture... I want you to do the work of being able to place that passage of Scripture uh, within its whole biblical context, right? And so I've said the Bible is a story, not a textbook. That means when you learn all these stories, Noah's Ark, David and Goliath, Bethlehem and the birth of Jesus, the good stuff he did in the middle before Easter and the, and the cross and resurrection, right? All this kind of stuff. You realize that all those little stories find their place in one big story. 
This is something I did not get in, in Sunday school when I was growing up. It was like, oh, that little guy who defeated the giant with the slingshot. That's awesome. Oh, and then this over here, the flood. Okay, did which one happen first, before, after? Are they part of one nation? Are they connected? What's happening, right? And so what we need to understand is all the little stories that we've, we've learned, especially if you grew up in the church, all find their place within the big story. And when we come to, to, to study a passage of Scripture, I want to encourage you to see if you can place that story within the bigger story. Now, this might seem a little bit obvious, particularly when we get to the New Testament, right? It's like if you, if you put the story as an arc like this, and the cross and resurrection is, is the peak, then it's like everything after that is just falling action for, for you English majors, right? And, and so it's like, how is the church and Christ coming back and all of that, how is that falling action? Well, let me, let me put it to you this way. I'm not just talking about placing it in a timeline. What I want you to do when you place a passage of Scripture is I want you to begin to understand how does this story point us to Christ or point us back to Christ? Because this book is about Jesus. It's about creation. It's about a nation that God raised up in order to bring Christ to us prepare us for Christ's sacrifice on the cross. It's about the establishment of a brand new community that forms itself and centers itself around the work of Christ. And it's about the second coming of Christ. Everything in this book either points us forward to Christ or points us back to Christ. And if you can read Paul's instructions on to 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 the marriage to the family and to uh, and, and his his instructions about marriage in Ephesians chapter five and point that back to Christ. Now we're getting somewhere, right? If you can read the the laws of Leviticus and think about how in the world does this point us to Christ, then all of a sudden those laws don't become so boring, right? Everything in the Bible is either pointing us forward to Christ or back to Christ. And placing the passage is doing just that. What are the ways in which this points us forward or backward to Christ? Now, I don't have a copy of this resource, but it is phenomenal. And I encourage every one of you to go out and buy it. If you want a great resource for how every story in the Bible points us either to Christ or back to Christ, it's the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's a kid's Bible, and it is phenomenal. And our e-kids curriculum is based on it. Amen. Right? Because what we want is we want our kids to grow up realizing that these stories are going somewhere. They don't just exist in isolation. It wasn't just, oh, great, have courage like David. It's here's how David points us to Christ. It's all of these things. And so I promise you, you will be smarter 
And the Holy Spirit will speak to you if you will read the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's a kid's Bible. Buy it today. If anyone from Zondervan is listening, you're welcome. (laughs) So then the fifth thing. Uh, Placing it. Let me say one more thing. Uh, I I did this uh, all summer uh, with a life group. We took the letters of Paul and we ran every letter through this framework. And it was awesome. And um, the the group had a lot of, kind of had a hard time a lot of times placing the passage of scripture. They were trying to make it more difficult than it is. Uh, and so I would, I would encourage you to uh, not try, don't, don't stump yourself in trying to place the scripture. Just realize that this, what does this instruction, this message, this truth that Paul is sharing in this particular context, uh, how does that point me back to Christ and him crucified and him resurrected? Um, so don't make it too hard. Uh, don't, don't make it more difficult than it is when it comes to placing the scripture. And then the fifth thing. Um, the fifth thing is application. Application. This is where you get out your paintbrush. Uh, you open up the, the can of knowledge that you've got and you start painting the walls of your life um, with, with this knowledge, this information. Because up to this point, we've really just gathered information, right? We've answered the five W's, who, what, where, when, why. Uh, We've answered a little bit of how, but not much. Uh, And so the application seeks to answer the question, so what? So what? Uh, It's like you could get to this point in a Bible study, and all you've really gotten is a can of paint. Um, but the but the application is is again start you start laying uh, down the the drip cloth and you start paint you start taping the edges and you start getting to work and and just like painting application uh, can be a mess. Oh come on, this metaphor is so good, and you guys are not working with me, right? And maybe you're not working with me, or maybe you're super silent because you're like, yeah, and you identify with it. And you're like, that is funny if it weren't so true. You know, it would be funny if it weren't so true. Um, and, and so the application begins to ask, begins to, to take this. It's like, the message that was shared in this particular context what are the ways in which that same message speaks now into my context? That's really the application. The message is not different than what the original authors wrote down and intended. And I think that's a lot of error in Bible study today is we churn Paul's instructions and his message into this particular context or, or any author, uh, and we make, it, we make the message different than what the, the author intended. Uh, let me give you an example. Um, the book of Revelation is written to seven real churches in real history that really existed. 
And it was written as a way of inspiring them to hope. And it was written as a way of moving them toward gospel-centered hope. Uh, That these seven churches needed a word from God uh, that would move them toward hope in the gospel and the return of Christ. The problem is, is when we rip that out of context and we make the book of Revelation awe-contextual, it has inspired in multiple generations of Christians, not hope, but fear. And when we read this last book of the New Testament and we become afraid, or we become afraid to even read it, then that is something fundamentally different than what John had in mind when he wrote it. And so we need to say, here's the original context. Here's the message that the author spoke into that context. How then do we take this same message and apply it to our context? And what you will find, and what we found out this past summer as we worked this structure through the the letters of Paul, is that the world in which the Bible was originally written, while it is fundamentally different than our own, at the very same time, it is fundamentally the same. In other words, the human condition hasn't changed much. Right? Like they're struggling with achievement based, uh, with, with value based on achievement. They're, they're struggling with how to form my identity firmly in Christ and not what my career is leading me to. They're struggling with, 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 with bickering between one another. They're struggling with, with how do I live a Christ-centered life in the midst of culture, right? I mean, their culture was different, but their struggles were the same. And so when it comes to the application, we need to realize two things. The biblical world is fundamentally different, and yet at the very same time, the human condition has not changed. And the way in which the Bible speaks to them, it can also speak to us. That's the beauty of the word of God. That's why the word of God has never gone out of style. That's why the Bible is absolutely living and active. And so we have to come, in our Bible study, we have to get to the point where we say, so what? And we have to begin to apply it. How do I live this message out in my office tomorrow? How do I work this out in my marriage or in my life with my roommate? What shifts need to take place in my heart for this truth to take root? That's an important question, right? When you come to, when you come to the application part of, of your Bible study, let me encourage you to move beyond surface-level morality. Here's what surface-level morality says. Uh, David was very courageous when he fought Goliath. You should also be more courageous. And so what do we do? We read that and we're like, man, I need to be more courageous. And, And so then we're like, okay, I'm more courageous. And then we're not. And we're like, reading the Bible doesn't do any good. Right? Or we read a a bad example. Uh, King Saul was good and then he turned bad. Don't turn bad like King Saul did. Okay. Hey, what are you doing this weekend? Not turning bad. You know, I mean, it's just like, 
Like, like, like that's surface level application of the Bible. Be like this character or don't be like this character. Unfortunately, this is where like 90% of children's ministry lives. Okay, and we're working on getting beyond that. Uh, but but so, so, so the application is, what needs to change in my heart for me to realize and to really understand and to live so that my identity is not formed and shaped by my achievements, but so that my identity is firmly rooted in who I am in Christ. That's a fundamentally different question than be like Paul because he planted lots of churches. Or if we say be like Paul because he planted a lot of churches, some of you are like, "Uh uh-uh. I'm not a pastor and I'm not a church planter, so I can't be like Paul. Right? So we need to move beyond and we need to ask, begin to ask of our heart second-level questions when it comes to the application. Are you with me? Uh, This takes some practice. Uh, but I believe that um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's practice well invested in uh, to begin learning the so what and asking yourself application questions that move beyond just, I need to be like this or I shouldn't be like that. Okay? So those are the five. About, context, message, place, and then application. Let's run this through a case study. You with me? Now we're going to preach. Now we're going to preach. So Galatians, let's do Galatians. Uh, I want to do basically the whole book of Galatians, but we're not going to read it, uh, but we're going to look at it as a whole and look at a couple key texts and how they bring out the themes. Now, how do I know that these key texts bring out the themes? Well, because I had the help of a Bible dictionary and a Bible handbook. <laughs> See? So, um, so, so we're going to bring out a couple key texts key text from the book of Galatians, and we're going to look at Galatians as a whole uh, to begin to run it through this framework. And we're going to fly through it, and then we're going to sing some songs and respond to God's goodness, and then we're going to give away some, some Bible resources because the party has not begun until you start giving away Bible resources. That's all I'm saying, okay? So, uh, so <laughs> Galatians chapter 2. Uh, Galatians chapter 2. I want to read 15 through 21, uh, and then I want to read verses uh, chapter 5, and then go, let's see, 22 through 26. So I'm going to read chapter 2, 15 through 21, and then chapter 5, 22 through 26. Uh, here it is. Let's read these key texts from the book of Galatians together. Now we who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Many say 2.16 is the key verse of the book of Galatians. Justification through faith in Christ, not by observation of the law. Now, verse 17. If, while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that not mean that Christ promotes sin? Well, absolutely not. 
If I rebuild what I have destroyed, I prove that I'm a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. For the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and he gave himself up for me. If if I do not set aside the grace of God, um, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ has died for nothing. That's an important message, not just to this church in this context, but for us today. If righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ has died for nothing. Turn over to chapter 5. Start reading in verse 22. This is a famous passage. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I think we read these, those too fast when we read them. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Right? And already, if you connect these two key passages, you begin to see a connection. Righteousness doesn't come through observation of the law, but through faith in Christ. And here are the fruit of the Spirit. And against those things, there is no law. Why would Paul say that? Well, because of the context and the discussion that has gone on before, particularly in chapters 2 and 3. Against no thing, there is, against such things there is no law. For those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with, with its passions and its desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not, be become, not, let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. And, and I love this as well. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. That's sort of this, this recognition that if I'm a little bit out of step with the Spirit, that doesn't mean that all is lost. It doesn't mean that the, the Christian life is walking on eggshells of, of, am I doing it right? Is everything perfect? I mean, Paul's instruction is, since we live by the Spirit, if you have, been, if you have confessed Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, and the Spirit is in you, then he says this truth about you. You are living by the Spirit. That's the truth of God. But then he says, so since that's true, then let us keep in step with the Spirit. It's this way of saying there's this truth about who you are, and yet there's a part that we have to play in living that out. Paul does this all the time, by the way. In 2 Corinthians, he says, you have been reconciled in Christ. It's already done. The work of Christ is complete upon the cross. And so he says, that's true. You've been reconciled. But then he calls upon people and he says, so now be reconciled. It's always this fact of this is the truth of who we are in Christ. And now let's live according to that truth. And guess what? You need the Spirit's help to do that. 
And so, the, so that's why the, the, the gospel and the Christian faith is not a, a, a faith uh, about that the, the leads us to guilt. It's not a faith that leads us to guilt. Because guilt would be, this is true of your identity. So get to it. What's your problem? Why aren't you living that way? That's not what Paul says. He says, this is the truth of who you are in Christ. Now, come on. Come on. I don't know if Paul did that. That's a contextual thing. See, in our, come on. Live that way by the power of the Spirit. It's already true. So live into that truth. It's an encouragement. It's an encouraging message that leaves room for grace. It's a beautiful thing. Now, we have, I'm just preaching, and I haven't even run it through the context. Okay. I haven't even run it through the big five. So let's do that. Let's learn about the book of Galatians. I'm going to fly through this. The book of Galatians was written by the Apostle Paul in, in 48 through 55. That's not 1948. That's like 48. Like 48. A.D. 48 through 55. It was written from... Either, we don't know for sure, Corinth, Ephesus, Macedonia, Antioch, or Syrian Antioch. You got some choices. Pick one, right? In other words, some books of the Bible we can nail down. It was written this time, in this place, and we have all this evidence to say that's for sure. Uh, Others, it's like, yeah, kind of sort of in this time frame and kind of sort of maybe from these places. And so sometimes you'll realize that the about has everything to do with the context and the message. And other times the about is just like, oh, that's good to know. But, but this book kind of could, could exist without us knowing exactly when and where. Okay, so that's the about. It was written to the new Christians in the city of Galatia. It was a, it's a letter that Paul wrote from one of those locations around A.D., 48 to 55, and he writes it to the new Christians in the church in Galatia. And so we find this letter. Now, what's the context? Uh, What's happening in the church in Galatia that would motivate Paul to write these letters? What's the description of what's going on in this place? Well, this group of people uh, the scholars have come to call the agitators— The agitators were taking new converts and swaying them away from the true gospel. In other words, they were like, oh, you're a new Christian? Come on over here and let me teach you all these things that actually aren't true. And these people were agitators. Now, what was their message? What were they saying to sway people from the true gospel? Well, uh, they were actually saying that... uh, they, they were saying that Gentile believers, the, that Gentile is uh, a non-Jewish believer, someone that has come to Christ that does not have a Jewish background. Uh, and so they were saying Gentile believers had to become just like Jews. In other words, they had to follow the laws of Moses. They had to follow the laws of circumcision. If you wanted to be in the club, then you have to obey our rules. That was the false message. You want, to be, you want to be following Christ? That's awesome. You need to convert to Judaism. You got to follow our rules. We've got all these rules. We've got all these practices. You got to follow it just like us if you want to be part of the club. That was the message. 
And so, if you want to be Christian, that was the deal. What kind of, that was their message. So what is Paul's message to this particular context? You following along? Paul says, and he wants to teach them, and he wants to remind them about the true nature of the gospel. And he says this, first, a man is not even justified by observation of the law, but by faith. Right? And so the, the, the false preachers, their entire focus of coming to Christ was not through faith in the beauty of grace, but was rather through obedience to a set of laws and practices. So if you just start living, uh, living how we say you ought to live, you're good to go. And Paul says, no, 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 no. For none of us, none of us have been justified by observation through the law. And in fact, he says in our key text, it's impossible to be justified through observation of the law. If you observe the law perfectly, your standing before God has not changed. Now that's a, that's a uh, scandalous message to this group of, of, of false preachers. And so, the, now the specific issue is, is circumcision. If you want to be one of us, then you need to follow our rules. Uh, this this um, probably sounds familiar to some of you. Um, because I, I believe that, uh, I wonder how many of, of you grew up in a context of Christianity that people had to shape up before they could belong. Oh, you want to be part of this church? You got to get yourself together. You gotta stop doing this, this, and 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 this. Oh, oh, and that. But that's not Paul's message. Paul's message is not like behave and then belong. Paul's message is belong then come to believe in the true gospel. And then because of Christ in our heart and his transformative power in our lives, we'll learn to behave. Come on, somebody. But for so long, the church has flipped those around. You see, the context is different. But it's not all that different. For so long, the message of the modern church has been behave. Get your things together. Stop doing that. Then you believe, and then you belong. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Paul says, you belong. And then you believe. And then the overflow of Christ leads you to behave. That's the message. And how Paul speaks into his particular context. Uh, now, he doesn't use cute little alliteration, you know. Uh, and, and in fact, he uses kind of complicated Greek. And, and he says, you know, actually, actually observation of law is, is, won't, won't, won't get you anywhere. Um, but that's ultimately the message. Uh, second, then, he says, so, so, so in other words, you can't be made righteous by the law. Only faith in Christ will make you righteous. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, 
In order to live righteously, you need the Spirit. It's the same thing. He says, this is who you are in Christ. You are righteous in Christ. Now go and live by the Spirit to live righteously. Right? This is the truth of who you are. This is your identity. If you're a Christian, then you are made righteous in Christ. That cannot be changed. That cannot be added to. That cannot be subtracted from. You are righteous in Christ. Now go on. Come on and live righteously by the power of the Spirit. That's Paul's message into this particular context. In other words, if I were to summarize uh, Galatians in one sentence, it would be this. The law can't make you righteous. Only faith in Christ can do that. But to live righteous, you need the Spirit. Which is why there's a connection between the key verse in chapter 2 that we read, the key passage, and then the key passage of the the fruit of the Spirit in chapter 5. Paul's saying he has to set the groundwork of you're not righteous because of your observation of the law. You cannot be made righteous. It's impossible. Perfect observation of the law does not make you righteous. Only faith in Christ makes you righteous because he is the perfect one. But in order to live out your true identity in Christ, you're going to need some help. And so live by the Spirit. Since you live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. And if you keep in step with the Spirit, here's the fruit that's going to come playing out in your life. Peace and patience and joyfulness and self-control and all these other fruits of the Spirit. And against such things there is no law. He says with a sly grin on his face. Right? You see how the Scripture, when we understand and walk through this framework, it begins to come alive. And then we must place it. We must place it. Uh, points, uh, it points us to the cross because we don't earn Christ through achievement. We don't earn Christ through achievement. I'm afraid that for too long people have been trying to earn the love of God and trying to earn Christ through achievement. That I got to get, I got to get everything together. I got to get morally straight. I got to get all my good works all in line. I got to do all this so that I can earn God's love. God's love you. God loves you, but you haven't been as bad as me. You don't know what I've done. There's no way that God could love me. I got to get all my stuff together before God could love me. Ultimately, the barrier of that is people are trying to earn Christ's love through achievement. And Paul says it can't be done. The message of the Bible is it cannot be done. There is no righteousness through the law, through great morality. It simply cannot be done. And so on one hand, you have people that are like, I got to get all my stuff together to be earned, to earn God's love. But at the same time, on the opposite end, too many times people rob themselves of experiencing the love of God because they'll believe they'll never be good enough to earn it. And then the other side, people try to earn God's love through high morality. And so you, mis- you, you mistake it in both ways. I am righteous because I'm so good, or I'll never be righteous because I'm so bad. And Paul says, neither one. The reality is, is that God loves you. And you're his, his righteousness, co- and your righteousness comes through faith. There's nothing you can do to earn it. No one is good enough that they have earned the great love of God and no one is so bad that they are out of reach of the love of God. That's an important message. 
Not just to the church in Galatia, but to us, to you and I, to me, to us today. This is evidence of the scripture being alive in us. The reality is this. When we place this passage, the reality is that Christ is already ours. Christ can't be earned through achievement because Christ is already ours. Not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done. Oh, that's good. That's good news. Far too long, we've kept a barrier between us and God because I, I'm never be good enough to earn it. And for far too long, we've stepped on this side of the line and said, I'm only loved by God because I've earned it. And we need to come to the reality that we already possess Christ through faith. Not on behalf of our own achievement or lack thereof, but on behalf of his achievement on our behalf. And that is a phenomenal truth of Scripture and what Paul brings out in Galatians. Now, how do we begin to apply this? Well, I want to ask a series of questions uh, to give you examples of how you might begin to apply uh, the passage of Scripture. What are the ways in which I'm trying to earn God's love through righteous living? And that's really fundamentally a question of the heart. That's not a question about what I'm doing out here. It's not necessarily a question about my actions. As much as it is a question that brings me into the very motivations of my heart. Am I doing anything or what am I doing to try to earn God's love through achievement? And maybe that achievement is personally informed. I feel like I ought to be this kind of person. Maybe that, maybe that is culturally informed, that in order to be uh, a good man, you need to do this. In order to be a good woman, you need to do this. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's informed by the corporate world, that you have to reach a certain level. You have to have certain letters behind your name in order to, to, to be worth it and, 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 and have achievement, whatever it is. What are the ways in which I'm seeking to earn God's love and acceptance through achievement? That's a fundamentally different question than I shouldn't do this or I shouldn't do that because they didn't do it or they did. Those are, that's a great question for application. Uh, another one, am I trusting in that achievement to give me self-worth? Am I trusting in that achievement to give me self-worth? Uh, this has been uh, probably one message that the Lord has had to speak into my life over and over and over and over and over again from when I can remember. As a teenager, it was like, I need, to be, I need to do this on the baseball team. I need to, you know, as college, I need to, I need to reach this certain level. When I was in seminary, I got to have a certain GPA, you know. And as, as a pastor, I got to have this, this, and this, and this, and you know, be worth it. And, and it's like the Lord just, just continually reminds me and says, am I trusting in achievement to give me my self-worth? And the Lord just continually sheds me of that and says, you're valuable because I love you. And you're valuable because I created you. And just rest in my grace. And just be okay. Right? 
Because no observation of the law has ever brought righteousness. And therefore, no achievement has ever brought worth. It's good. It's good. What can I do to allow the Spirit to work in me more freely? Uh, right? Because it's like, it's like, this is your identity, but you've got to have some help. You've got to have the Spirit. And here's the evidence of the Spirit. Asking the question, does the, does the Spirit of God have room in my life to work? And, and that could be something, like the answer to that could be something really practical, like, like am I really just spending time with the Lord on a regular basis? That's, that's giving the Spirit room to work. Um, it could be an attitude of the heart. Is there, something, is there some attitude of mine that's blocking the Spirit? Uh, not that the Spirit can't. Not that the Spirit can't, like, bust down your attitude if he wants to. Uh, but, but we, you know, we, it's a participation thing. It's a relationship. It's not just some empty religion where we just do this and that and that and we get what we want. God's not a vending machine, right? This is a relationship. And so we have a part to play. What, are there attitudes in my heart that are blocking the Spirit's work in my life? And, and if that's true, man, you got to unblock the Spirit. you got to unblock the Spirit. That is the word for some of you today. Unblock the spirit. And you've got to say it with some attitude. Um, and, and then, uh, this, is a, this is a good question that, that begins sort of on that, that first level, uh, but then, then moves a little d- deeper. Um, are the fruits of the spirit evident in my life? Uh, that's, a, that's a level one question, right? Like, I mean, you can imagine being in a Bible study reading through this list and then someone's saying well what what fruits are you missing oh man i'm missing patience i need some patience up in here you know uh so that's good identify that first what are the what are the what is the you know are there fruits of the spirit that are evident or missing in my life um and then go deeper what changes need to happen in my heart to be patient So, so, like, that's different than saying, man, patience is lacking. I need to be more patient. And so then I, like, pull up my bootstraps, tighten my belt, and go out the next day with resolve to be more patient, baby. I'm going to do it. And then God, in his goodness, gives you an opportunity to be more patient. And you're like, Lord, you got to help me. How come you did that? That's one thing. That's one area. But then you can go on and say, why is it that I lack patience? Is there a distrust in God? Is, is, there, is there a distrust in something else or someone else? Like, like what shifts need to happen in my heart so that the so if that changes in my heart then the overflow of that change is I'm more patient is this helpful we've got to go we got to, in the application we got to go deeper we've, we've got to ask second level questions if I lack self-control then what am I asking that habit to do for me Right? I got this habit. I can't get rid of it. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. I lack it. I, can't, I, can't, I don't have any power over this. What am I asking that habit to do for me? 
What drives me to do that habit? And then how can God provide that thing for me in a truly authentic way? Whatever I'm I'm asking this thing to do that I lack self-control over, how can God provide that for me in a much more authentic way? Because that thing is never going to, it's never going to do what you're asking it to do. It can't. But God can. Thanks for listening to the Emmaus Road Podcast. We hope this message has been encouraging to you. If you'd like to support the ministry of Emmaus Road, you can do so online. Just visit theroadfc.org and click online giving.